Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Love, Anne, a new play by Clarinda Ross, is the story of two mothers and their sons set during the dawn of the AIDS epidemic. Horizon Theatre will premiere the virtual play tomorrow in observance of World AIDS Day. Later this hour, we'll talk with the playwright, Clarinda Ross, and actor Terry Burrell about this story of humanity, Southern humor, and the healing power of love. First, Sonic Wizards, based here in Atlanta. From recording a commercial with a goat chomping on Doritos to scoring The Liberator, a full-length Netflix series set during World War II, the sound designers known as tune welders have created an impressive body of work. The Atlanta-based musicians are with us now via Zoom, composers Ben Holst and Jason Shannon, with executive music producer Jeremy Gilbertson. Welcome to City Lights. Good morning. Thank you. Ben, the three of you have been friends for a long time. Would you walk us through how you met and eventually got together to start the audio production sound design company, Tune Welders? Oh, sure thing. One of my favorite stories. When I was in uh, seventh grade, I got a phone call after school from Jeremy Gilbertson, who was a, a year older than me up in uh, Connecticut. He was a big-time eighth grader, and uh, he called and asked me if I would join his band as the guitar player. And, uh, yeah, I remember kind of just sort of jumping for joy and go, wow, an older older guy's called me to play in their band. I'll, I'll do it. You know, we started playing together in middle school. He was the drummer. I was the guitar player. We had a band called The Premonition. And you can take that experience and basically fast-forward that friendship through college and into adulthood and in about 2007 or 8 I was getting a little bit more serious with with producing and stuff and working a lot in Nashville and and Jeremy approached me about kind of stepping up my game and 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 organizing the company a little bit more and and going after some bigger business and we incorporated uh, at that point 
and I sort of uh, pulled back from Nashville and focused on Atlanta, and we, we kind of kicked off the company then. A few years later, I met Jason through a mutual friend. Uh, we were both um, moving into the same apartment complex and uh, happened to stumble in, into our buddy Tyson, and he was like, man, you got to meet this guy, Jason. I swear you guys are going to be buddies. You got to meet this dude. And I, it was late. I'd come back from a gig, and I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. We'll, we'll hang out. He goes, no, you got to meet him right now. Walk me up to his apartment. I think Jason, Jason was probably getting ready for bed too, and uh, we kind of shook hands. And, and at that point, Jason and I started hanging out, and, and it was it was pretty evident that we had a, a strong musical and personal connection. So we've been working together since uh, the three of us since about 2012. Would each of you talk about your roles for Tune Welders? I think in general we all wear a, a lot of different hats, which is kind of why this little model works so well. I would say from my perspective, I do a lot of the outreach and kind of uh, the kickoff of a lot of these projects to figure out, you know, working, whether it's a TV show producer, a showrunner, a filmmaker, you know, someone in the advertising space, content creator, I would sit down with them and kind of figure out what the strategy is and figure out what they're trying to do, what they need music and sound for. And then, you know, we usually huddle up between, uh, you know, the three of us and kind of put a strategy together and get the thing kicked off. You sound modest. <laughs> I've seen some clips. I've heard your drumming. You're modest. But it sounds like you do a lot of the coordination with the business end. There certainly is uh, some music and, and things that I knock around on and produce and, and perform on my own as well. But yeah, a lot of the a lot of the front end work between the the content creator and us is I usually kind of quarterback that experience. Jason, you and Ben are listed as co-composers. That's not always easy. Would you talk about your collaborative process? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I think Ben would definitely agree that it's not always it's not always <laughs> easy. You know, in a creative setting, I think collaboration, you know, working with another creative man, it's it's one of the hardest things that you can do. But I believe that we've found a way to be successful and and work together and expand our own individual capabilities by doing exactly that. I, th I think one thing that I would say that we we really, you know, we thrive on is the ability to work together as a group in a very creative setting and be critical and beat each other up in a good way. And, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it makes the music better. And Ben, your role, again, is all composition. You know, it's, I've been referred to as, as somewhat of a, a Swiss Army knife over the years. So I have I have a background in, in producing records in sort of the traditional engineering recording studio sense. You know, I'm, I'm a gap fill in a lot of ways. I play guitar, upright bass, little keys, all that stuff. I'm, I'm more of a self-taught ear musician. You know, so I do a lot of the, the, the pulling off of the recording of things and, and the wrangling of the audio and the and the piecing together and the editing, a lot of that work. One article I read, I think it was in Atlanta Magazine, described you as sonic wizards. So would you talk about how the creative work you do in the studio is meant to achieve audio magic? Well, I think... One thing that we work hard to do is to not accept limitations. 
So there are any number of million dollar studios and bajillion dollar microphones and all this process and all this equipment, all this stuff that certainly can make life easier, maybe more fun sonically. But, you know, we kind of just get it done in a way. And so, you know, if you think of a wizard as somebody who can just get something done, that process isn't necessarily pretty. You know, when it comes down to like making sound effects, there are times when, for instance, we had to do a golf commercial and we just needed the right sort of sound of a golf bag kind of going on someone's shoulder. You could spend three hours looking for that in a sound effects library, or you can just walk out to your client's car who happens to have a golf bag in the back of it and record it on your iPhone, email it to yourself. By the time you're back in the studio, it's sitting in your inbox and you pull it into a session and you're done. So that's the kind of thing where someone might look at that as wizardry. I look at it as the path of least resistance. Yeah, the wizardry component is, to me, the interweaving of what music is and what sound design is, because they all create this this audio environment, right? Whether it's a musical piece or it's trying to create a realistic effect to match a beautiful visual. And I think the fun that we have is, is bringing these tonal and atonal and melodic and non-melodic elements all together to make this this whole environment rather than focusing you know just on you know sound design or sound effect or just on music or score or a song within it i think it's bringing them both together and letting them weave in and out and kind of the modern aesthetic and it's becoming increasingly this way and in, um, in modern scores is is kind of a mix of music and sound design the one great reference that i always like to use is um, the arrival score, uh, which was Johannesson. And I think more and more you're getting into these situations where the modern aesthetic is a good mix. And because we really focus on that area in between music and sound design, I think it really kind of elevates, you know, the work that we do. Let's talk about the latest project, scoring the soundtrack to the Netflix series, the Liberator. How did it come about? Yeah, it's in our nature, I think, Ben, Jason, and I, to invest in people and projects that we believe in and kind of put what Ben always says, put our money where our mouth is or put our music where our mouth is. And we had a, ran and started building a relationship with a couple of guys, Chad Crowley and Brandon Barr, who were over at School of Humans and now Trioscope Studios, which is the group that you know basically put the Liberator project together. And I remember I was running through this with Jason and Ben as we're watching it on Netflix, just kind of reminiscing that, yeah, I remember it was about four years ago. I'm sitting at a conference room table. Uh, Chad is across from me. Brandon is across from me. And we're just talking about, you know, what we do as tune welders, what they do as school of humans and what they're putting together with Trioscope. And there, there was a moment where you know, you make that one connection. You're like, I want to find out. I want to find a way to work with these guys because I like what they're doing. And I think they looked at us and they said, hey, there's there's something interesting there. So Chad was like, hey, I got this project we're, we're trying to work together on, trying to pitch, and we need some help. And, you know, it's just our nature to, to lean into something like that, lean into that opportunity. So I brought it back to Ben and Jason and said, hey, what do you guys think? And they said, this looks awesome. Let's do whatever we can to to support it. Yeah, I think at that point, we, we sort of set the groundwork, and then they developed a seven-minute pilot. And this is about three to four years ago. They developed a pilot, and we decided that we would 
sound design and score the pilot for them completely on spec in good faith that, hey, if we help them land the deal that they would consider us for the job when it came through. And uh, not so much in a dangling a carrot kind of kind of thing, but hey, you know, we'll we'll help you guys out now and, and keep us in the mix. So we spent the better part of, I, th- I think I logged about 60 hours doing the sound design and Jason attacked the music and we bat this little test fit around for about a week and a half and then submitted it and worked real closely with the director, uh, Greg, on, on the tone and, and everything and kind of got the feel of what the piece needed to be. And a year and a half or so later, they get the green light and we're at the table. One of the interesting moments, just to chime in, Ben, I, I know you and Jason remember this well. We're sitting at our studio. The two producers I mentioned uh, came in. They brought the director, Greg, who Ben referenced, and also the showrunner, who happened to be a guy named Jeb Stewart. If you don't know Jeb Stewart, he wrote Die Hard. He wrote The Fugitive and a lot of these big movies. So, you know, seeing him and talking with him, I remember looking at Ben and Jason going, holy cow, this is kind of amazing. Just talking to the guy and this guy's going to be putting this series together. So that was a cool moment. It's a very powerful series. We should add for people who aren't familiar or haven't seen it yet. It's based on a book called The Liberator, One World War II Soldier's 500-Day Odyssey. It was released on Veterans Day, which made it all the more meaningful, I think. And the soundtrack features a variety of different moods and genres. One thing that I thought you conveyed beautifully was the loneliness of the characters, even though there is this strong battle bonding that they have, just the isolation, the fear, and also the eeriness of the silence that can surround them. Five Variations on Hunted is very powerful in conveying the horrors of war. To me, the overwhelming tone of both the book and the series is one of overwhelming relentlessness. Based on the real life events, there weren't a whole lot of up or affirmative moments. The one word I can think of is just relentlessness. These guys fought for 500 days or they were in Europe for 500 days and they saw battle something like 90% of those days. It was was just something unbelievable. And E-Company also just suffered massive casualties in the Battle of Anzio, I, I believe all but just a handful of the company, three or four men died or, or were captured. And one of the reasons for that is they called for you know shelling on their own 
positions. You know, I think going into it, we, we thought there'd be more opportunity for, you know, to kind of let the light in. And there were some of those, but for the most part, the door opens, a little bit of light comes in, and then it slams shut. You're back in our zone. Because we had such a, a reverence as humans for the story, I think we worked really hard not to ever sensationalize combat. And it's not this big, triumphant hero story, because no matter what happens in combat, it's, it's, it's complete horror. And so I think a lot of times we, we treated it more as such, more as, as horror and not this big, massive you know, march to victory. There's a quote from Slaughterhouse-Five that there's nothing intelligent to say about a massacre. When I was thinking of things that maybe kind of sum up our approach to the score, I think that Vonnegut quote was, is a good one. Jeremy Gilbertson, the executive producer for Tomb Welders, along with composers Ben Holst and Jason Shannon. We'll hear more of my conversation with these sonic wizards after a short break. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to my conversation with Ben Holst, Jason Shannon, and Jeremy Gilbertson of the audio production company Tune Welders. We're talking about their work for the Netflix series The Liberator. Ben, would you talk about the instrument you created specifically for this soundtrack. Yeah, so this instrument was made by a friend of mine, Bill Skiffington. You know, it's interesting to me because I was telling my girlfriend the other day, I think every instrument that I used on the cues that I made were gifts from people, which is just something odd. I, I think there's sort of little Easter eggs I like to put in there, almost as a thanks to those people that have supported me along the way. But um, so I went to a bachelor party weekend with a friend of mine a bunch of years ago, and I met this guy named Bill Skiffington, and he happened to own this company, Wellspring Guitars, and they make cigar box guitars. And about three weeks after this this bachelor party weekend up in the mountains, one of these guitars showed up just you know at my house I had no idea and Billy sent me this guitar just to have me check it out or whatever and I just fell in love with it because it's it's a three-stringed guitar I can't even remember what I have it tuned to but it's got this really dark wooden sort of like hollow dry sound to it and I just picked it up and little tunes and things just kind of poured out of it and so it's a real simple folk instrument that you know traditionally is made from 
uh, the body is basically a cigar box. These are made, I think, on the side at a, at a cabinet-making <laughs> facility just for fun. But Billy sent me this thing, and I was like, man, one of the very first licks I came up with was kind of what ended up as the theme in that um, the, the piece called Sparks Convincing. instrument we used it to sort of represent Captain Felix Sparks sort of in his moments of loneliness and it's just this very rootsy salty sound and the the instrument was really inspiring so it was it was very meaningful to include it in the score and it just kind of worked as this texture that carried through even through some of the more grandiose pieces that were dealing with what we called like a Sparksian moment or whatever, that instrument was a sort of a character player. You could also imagine that it's the kind of instrument that might be slung over the shoulder of a soldier who was, you know, marching. Yeah, or something that maybe they pick up as a souvenir almost. You know, you pick up a random folk instrument whenever you're in. Uh, so, you know, it had this, it wasn't a guitar. You know, it doesn't sound, it's three strings and the voicings are, are, are different. And so it's not this as familiar sounding as a guitar, although we did use guitars sometimes, but they were more to sort of balance out the, the cigar box guitar. We used a nylon string guitar, which, which for us uh, represented a little more of the Southwestern and Mexican influence. Um, and that, those two, the cigar box guitar and the nylon string guitar paired up and worked in, in, in parallel in, in some of the pieces. And not to mention that also that there were a few cues where we wrote the cue to detune the cigar box guitar, which gave it even more of a lonely, uh, desolate kind of quality. One, one quick thing to add on this for the cigar box piece and the, and the nylon string guitar, Ben, I, I, think, I think it was a real pivotal moment for us as we were trying to translate the ideas and the feelings and the, and, the, and the themes we were discussing with the director and the producer and the showrunner, figuring out how to tie this, this really interesting story of this group of soldiers that come from various backgrounds and Native Americans, Mexicans, cowboys, like people that couldn't sit down in a bar together and have a beer in the U.S., but they're over in Germany fighting. How can we represent them as a collective? And I remember we, we talked through it like a lot. And, and there was the aha moment where you pulled the guitar, pulled that cigar box guitar out. And we're like, that's it, man. Like that is, that's where we need to go. I just remember it being a very pivotal moment for me in, in the development of the music as a whole. We worked on developing music before we even saw the first, well, we'd seen the pilot. I guess what was cool really is that we, we worked with the, with the producers and everybody well in advance of getting the first episode. So we kind of had sort of a screen test uh, of sounds and we figured out the, the, the boundaries, I guess, uh, of where we were going to fall. And that was, you know, for, for my skill set and sort of the cues that I covered, which 
I think my my contribution was much more heavy in in episode one, where the stories were more American, more stateside. My skills lend themselves to that sort of Americana, guitar playing, roots music. And then as we traveled into Europe and beyond, Jason and our other uh, partner, Mikolai, their sensibilities really, really took over as the story became more complex. I was intrigued with the music for Champagne Campaign. What can you tell us about that? That is probably one of the lighter moments. We studied uh, some Django Reinhardt and some Gypsy Jazz, and uh, that whole scene—they're kind of—they're getting cheered on, and they're showing up, and it's sort of a—it's sort of a moment of reprieve. So it's like, how how can we build this in without being trite in, in any way? And and it was just sort of a nice break to kind of pass them them through some some time where they were not in danger uh, in that piece. And I was going to say, too, that that moment was happening in the story and in the in the campaign. I think a lot of the soldiers had had thought this was representing kind of the end of the war. We are getting close to the end, but we find out the worst is yet to come. So I think that moment really served as a good way of just a little bit of reprieve before the heart of darkness. Ben, you have said that humans continue to be the most powerful part of the recording process. Would you talk about your relationship to technology when it comes to recording and creating sounds? As a producer over the years, I have, I I won't go so far as to say a love-hate relationship with technology. I'm lucky that I know how to use it, but I didn't so much get into this uh, business to be a technician uh, and a computer science um, engineer. But I find that having a command of the recording gear helps me get kind of get it out of the way as much as possible. And what I love about the, the human aspect is there are no two people that are going to make the same decision the same way. So living in Atlanta, I've spent years kind of cataloging all the various personalities that I can cast for whatever musical moment I'm, I'm trying to either accomplish for myself or for, for a client or for a score or whatever. And even if you say you're working with another composer or something, the way they're going to program a note, the choices they're going to make is completely uh, unique to their their personality, their life journey. There's so many variables to to the human input that that continually make it fascinating beyond the capabilities of recording. And I think those human in, inputs are always going to supersede the recording capabilities or whatever. Whether you're using a four track, like I could make something awesome with a four track, the input is going to going to supersede the quality of 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 the capture, which will ultimately make it more powerful than if maybe I spent a hundred thousand dollars getting all the right 
players in place and it can be ex- exhaustive the amount of options you have in any musical decision to make but um but i do find that what i'm most always intrigued and energized by is is the human input and and the variables that unique personalities play on the decisions in the moment there's a certain aesthetic that we're granted as composers when we use some of these this technology you know there was a moment in the score it was one of the battle scenes where we'd used some low strings like some up some bowed bass and calenio celli and the low strings gave a, a really sort of dark quality to the battle. But what really made it come to life was layering a um, modular synth, you know, an octave below. And what that ended up doing was you ended up feeling those strings more. It really added to it. So we, we found that we did, a lot of, we did a lot of that during the score. You know, those sort of sub-bass, sub-harmonic tricks are something that weren't really available a hundred years ago to to composers but they but they are now and i think it really adds adds something to the um to the aesthetic yeah absolutely there's nothing in the technology that replaces people you know you could really go into it as far as budget and hiring you know symphonies and all that kind of stuff i I'm an optimist, and I, I tend to think that the jobs have maybe changed, and and some people choose to not evolve, and that's the conversation. Not so much that the machines have taken anything away. Composers Ben Holst, Jason Shannon, and producer Jeremy Gilbertson of the audio production company Tune Welders. The Liberator is streaming on Netflix now. More information about Tunewelder's sound design will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The power of all-encompassing love, along with the history behind the AIDS memorial quilt, is at the heart of Love M, a play by Clorinda Ross premiering on World AIDS Day, December 1st. The virtual performance is a production of Horizon Theater. Joining us now via Zoom are the playwright Clorinda Ross, along with Atlanta treasure actor Terry Burrell. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> Thank you. Clorinda, I read this is a deeply personal story. What inspired you to write Love M? Well, I, I'm primarily an actress. I always thought of myself as an actress who writes on the side, but I've written uh, two other plays, and I was getting to be more serious about my playwriting, and, and, and I thought I had done a production of my play, solo piece, Spit Like a Big Girl, and uh, the director... Uh, here in Los Angeles said, well, what is your next thing? And I thought about it and I had recently reconnected with the mother of a friend of mine, uh, the first person that I knew to die of AIDS. His name is Christian Hessler. And he, we were together at the Alliance where we studied from 83 to 85. We were interns at the Alliance together. And um, he was the first person that I knew personally to die of AIDS. And it just I reconnected with his mother after many years and you think you know this story and there's two sides to every story and you don't know the whole story and with the perspective of 
age and now I'm a mother, I have three kids of my own. And I thought I need to really understand these mothers and what they went through being there at the forefront of it. So because I'm the daughter of two PhDs, I did all this research and interviewed about 40 mothers and kind of came back to the two that I knew best, you know, uh, the mother of a friend who lived and the mother of uh, a friend who died. And, you know, they're composites taken from all these interviews, but it's very, very personal, the, the stories that I chose to tell. The depth and range of emotions, no doubt, was tremendous. What can you tell us about some of your conversations with those 40 people? Well, I kind of knew I was off to the right foot. You know, I, I am, women kind of work in a circular way, I believe, as writers and playwrights. We kind of circled the topic and circled the topic. And I was telling someone, I was here in L.A., and I was at a party, and I was talking to a friend, and I said, you know, I've got this idea. And she's like, oh, my God, that's so fabulous. You have to talk to my Aunt Dot. And that was the first interview that I set up. And I had a, you know, I would say almost a religious experience. I I drove to Redondo Beach to meet this woman, Aunt Dot, and she was elderly at the time. She was with her nurse. And I just had the experience of like I was meeting Mother Teresa or uh, Mandela or Gandhi. It was a very emotional. She told me all about her son. And, you know, and at the end of it, I knelt down. My face is all red from crying. I said, may I please have my picture with you? And her nurse took our picture. And I so I just took it as a sign I was on the right path and I kept going. And it was, there were days I'd wake up crying, you know, I was, whoa, can I do this? Can I do this? But I kept on and on and getting more interviews. The story of Love M unfolds through letters written back and forth between the characters at the dawn of the AIDS epidemic. You mentioned being at the alliance between 83 and 85. How would you describe that time period? It was so scary. Uh, we just didn't have a lot of information. There was so much fear. And there were, like, nurses would leave the trays outside the room, not want to go in the room with the patient. And that happened to my friend Christian there at Crawford Long. He was at Crawford Long for a while. And um, there Nobody knew exactly how it was transmitted. There was just a lot of misinformation, a lot of fear, and a lot of prejudice. He got sick. I'm, I'm going to say it was around 87. And I was doing Steel Magnolias, the first regional production that was done of that show. It was kind of a big deal at the Alliance. We ran forever, and it extended. And, you know, the playwright was with us because he was prepping the play for publication. And you know, it was it, sometime during there, he was coming out of a you know, living situation, like he was constantly losing where the apartment where he living situation or being turned out of an assisted facility, you know, he'd go to the hospital, they tried to move him along really quickly. They were treated as pariahs. Exactly, exactly. And there was one part, he didn't have somewhere to go. And I was like, uh, and I was there playing Shelby. And I was like, Oh, you can come to my house, you can move into my guest room. And I lived uh, in uh, Smyrning or Vinings, if you're fancy, uh, out there. Now. <laughs> You know, right off of old Atlanta Road, right at 285. And, 
and then the people at the Alliance got nervous. It was a woman named Edith Love at the time. And, and so they got an apartment for Chris and he stayed, I guess they used it for out of town actors, like from New York that would stay in there. And they put him there and they got him a nurse. And then finally his parents came around and came and got him. But, you know, I just, at that point hadn't had children. I was like, what? the world's upside down. This is wrong. They should come get their sons. And, you know, as I said, you think you know the whole story. And it was a long time before I reconnected with his mother, Nancy. He went eventually home to Indianapolis to die. And he called me when he was dying. I was, at that time, I was at the Alley Theater in Houston. And he said, you know, wanting to say goodbye. And he asked me if I'd go to his grave. And I said, yes, of course, of course, my darling, I will come to your grave. I just didn't think it'd take me so long to get there. But at 2010, I was in Indianapolis for a film festival and I reconnected with his mother and heard her side of it. And I thought, this is interesting. These mothers were up against it. Everybody was shunning them. You know, they're being told all this stuff, you know. So I tried to look at them from the lens of now grown up Clorinda looking back on it and as a mother myself. This would be for either of you. Can we have a brief summary of this storyline? Well, my son is gay, and he is not suffering from AIDS. But his mother, who is very religious and a simple woman, basically, lives in rural North Carolina, loves her son tremendously, is very, very proud of him, and is full of fear that if people find out that he's gay, that he will be ostracized. He's the first to go to college. He's become a, an attorney. That's a big deal. And she, uh, she tries to convince him that he can just, if he would just read Bible verses and go to Jesus, that he'll be fine. You know, and she says things like, I was so proud of you when you were in high school and you played basketball and you were banned. And look at those, all those wonderful young women who really, really liked you. You, you could have married any one of them. And she, she's already lost a child, his oldest brother. And she thinks that if his brother had still been alive, that that would not have happened. I mean, she just could not get with the fact that uh, it was not a choice on his part. But they, they actually fight the same way with each other, with these Bible verses, you know. But throughout the whole thing, you see that there's great love until she just goes a little too far. And he finally cuts the umbilical cord, which is always a very scary thing for any child to do. You have to be very committed to that uh, course of action. And he cuts the umbilical cord. And her husband has died. Um, her daughter has had a child. So there's really no one around her except for her church family. And there's a young preacher there who's every Sunday is preaching how AIDS is punishment for homosexuality. And finally, she, the, light, the light bulb comes on and she can't take it anymore. And she has a complete change of heart. She confronts the church she leaves the church, which was a huge thing to do because it was her family that founded the church. And she packs up her uh, husband's Cadillac, baby, along with this cat that she's like really dotty, dotty, dotty over. And she drives to Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, he doesn't want to see her, but it's his partner. His partner, who happens to be Caucasian and is from a much more liberal background, who gets them together. So it, in this case, it does have a happy ending. Clorinda, you play 
Deborah, a wealthy Southern socialite, would you talk about your inspiration for writing this character? Well, this character is a composite. You know, this is not strictly Christian's mother. This is based on, there's an interview that I got. I did a lot of interviews, but a lot of the mothers who didn't react well to their sons, you know, being gay, understand that at that time, the moment that they came out is also a lot of time coinciding with the moment that they told their parents they were sick. So it was a, it was a big it was a big shock. So there was a woman, Gert McMullen, who's still with the quilt. The quilt's now back in San Francisco. It was in Atlanta for many years, um, and she kind of represents for me an opportunity to to hear that side of the story because she was in the hospitals in San Francisco with the young men as they were dying and calling for their mothers, and she was there with them. And um, she shared letters with me. And she shared stories with me and it really gave me an insight. Um, and there was one particular mother that I interviewed who basically was on Prozac from the day of her son's death. And she spent a lot of time doing hospice work. And it was, I, I viewed it as paying penance because she wasn't really there for her son when he died. So she wanted to pay penance. And so we incorporate, I incorporated that idea into the play that Deborah uh, is this rich lady who volunteers, does this hospice work, and then she connects with the the son that uh, Terry Burrell's son, Timothy, and he at, by that time uh, her character has passed away, and the 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 woman who's lost her son and the son who's lost his mother have a kind of a healing. They kind of come together over this shared desire to do good in the world and. He teaches her and she teaches him. In fact, it's really Deborah, the character of Deborah, who convinces Timothy that he needs to give Myrtle, which is uh, Terry's character, a second chance. And she says, you know, basically what I wouldn't give for a second chance. I, I have a suitcase full of regrets. Please listen to your mother. Make up with your mother while you still can. And he is and, and he does that. And, and just before Myrtle passes away. They have a rapprochement and they're, so it's an emotional journey for these characters, but I hope, and I think that it's, it has a uplifting message of the healing power of love and acceptance. And, you know, when we did the reading, I was there in Atlanta in 2019 and we did a reading at the horizon and people who, you know, didn't have gay children, just children, maybe who'd gone away to college or something. They connected with this idea of accepting your children for who they are, meeting them where they are, loving them for who they are. So I, I hope I've done that. And th this format is just uh, great. I've expanded the play since that reading. Uh, we're now doing it as a four character piece. It was originally a two character piece. And I just am so thankful to have the talents of, of Terry and Lamont to come on board and, and breathe life into these characters as we have expanded the play with the help of Lisa, Heidi Klein, McClurley, my old, old friend. You know, she's done a tremendous job. And I want to really give a shout out to Marguerite Hanna, who's there at the Alliance Theater and serves as dramaturg. And she read the script and she is, you know, an African-American woman of my age. And she really helped me, um, with some insights into this character that Terry portrays. So I'm very grateful to Marguerite. So you've talked about a whole lot of tragic emotion, albeit there is redemption with these characters. How is Southern humor 
a framework for this story? Well, I'm very Southern and people tell me I'm funny. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and I think even in the darkest times there is humor. So I think especially Myrtle has quite a few funny insights, you know, just her innocence. You know, she so believes in the church and the Bible and, and there's just some really, you know, quick and, 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 and funny transitions for her. She has an innocence to her that I really love. Terry, I have heard you on stage without your wonderful New York accent. I don't think I've ever heard you speak Southern. Well, you know something, when I read it, she immediately came to me. You know, the fact that Clorinda was happy with with my choices made it a lot easier. As I said to them in the the very beginning, I said, listen, if there's something about the way I'm doing this that's not fitting, please speak up. You can't hurt my feelings. But I just heard her kind of like this, you know, a little deep. And she had this sort of quick little way of speaking. You know, that's the thing. It, it, I, I like that cat because, uh, you know, he, he lays across my toes and keeps them warm. I just knew that's the way she spoke. She would have a, a slightly deeper voice than I have. And, you know, she she's very clear, very clear. And, and you, I remember you and Lamont were kind of talking about all the expat Southern folk in New York City and places that y'all like to eat and that kind of thing. Uh, one rehearsal we were talking about, you know, there's so many southerners you know in new york very much so and a lot of northerners in the south (laughs) (laughs) we're yeah trading places places but i you know i i I wear my southern proudly i've lived in la since 1996 and people are always asking me did you just get here (laughs) right well actually my grandmother was from the south my my father was from the south it was uh it was florida so it was a little bit of my grandmother's uh, kind of persona that I was able to remember. I remember my, her saying to me when I was 10, she said, now you got a, you got a devil on the left shoulder and you got an angel on the right. And when <laughs> that devil starts whispering in your ear, you say, shoo, devil, shoo, shoo. Oh, I love it. See, Terry, I thought your parents were from Jamaica. No, my mother was from Trinidad, and that's where me and my two sisters after me were born and spent our early childhood. But my father was the Southerner. He was in the service. That's how they met. So, mm-hmm. but I grew up in, in, in New York. You know, I grew up in New York. <laughs> no. But yeah, she did such a beautiful job and just jumped right into it. You know, this, this production that we were doing, Terry's in New York. I'm in L.A., Lamont is in Atlanta in the bubble. He's working for Tyler Perry right now, I believe. And so he's in this protected bubble. And Heidi is there in Atlanta. And um, the other actor, Chris Heckey, is there in Atlanta. I believe he works for Atlanta Shakespeare. And so we were all, and we all met up on Zoom and rehearsed and did this. And so I'm just grateful to Lisa Adler for giving a new play, The Love That It Needs, you know, it takes time, it takes development, and I'm so excited about this new four-person version um, and grateful to Terry and Lamont for coming on board and helping me realize this vision with, with the horizon. And what does it mean for this new play to debut in partnership with AIDS activist groups on World AIDS Day? 
Oh, it's so many. We did the reading in March 19, went away. Who knew what our world would look like a year from then, right? And we're hit with this pandemic, and I'm here at my house, and I'm thinking, okay, I need to pick that play up out of the drawer, and I need to revisit it in terms of this pandemic now and looking at now, because I remember this interview that was pivotal for me with Gert McMullen of the AIDS Quilt. She talked to me about what a debt Americans owe all of these young men who died in terms of the research that was done for infectious disease. She goes, and she talked to me about her parents dealing with polio. So she really saw it in this public health space um, and talked to me a lot about that. And I saw this is the time to do it while we're in this pandemic. And so I just looked at it with a, a new lens and worked on these characters and called Lisa and I said, can we get something together? And she said, yes, we are going to do it. And, and we're going to do it with World AIDS Day. And she's put together and you guys can go to their the website, horizontheater.org. It's a really wonderful evening. They're going to have a lot of speakers and especially in pertaining to the African-American characters in this play and how that community was dealing with acceptance and how it was difficult. And they're gonna have a psychologist, uh, some people uh, representing the AIDS foundations. It's gonna be a really wonderful live stream evening on December 1st. And that's the thing that struck me about this play. I don't feel so old, but it's like, this is history. There are people that come to this play that don't understand the history of, of AIDS and the AIDS quilt and, and what it's meant to the community. Clarinda Ross, actor and playwright, and actor Terry Burrell, Horizon Theater's Love M, will stream free of charge beginning tomorrow, World AIDS Day. More information on the play and where to find it will be on our website at wabe.org slash citylights. Alfred Urey is the only American writer to win the Triple Crown, a Tony Award for Best Play, Hollywood's Oscar for Best Movie Screenplay, and a Pulitzer Prize for Drama. He was inducted into the Georgia Writers Hall of Fame in 2015 and honored this year as part of their 20th anniversary celebration. When we spoke recently, I asked Alfred Urey what inspired him to become a writer. My grandmother had four sisters, and they used to go at each other, and I would be a little boy playing on the floor with my stuff, and they would go back and forth, and it just was riveting. They would say things like, I saw Helen Jones last night. You did not. Yes, I did. You know, and it would just go on like that for hours. You know, and my mother liked movies, so I went to the movies a lot when I was probably too small to go. I just bought the whole package, and I wanted to be a writer. Always. Well, you have expanded the package, and many of the themes in your plays, such as Driving Miss Daisy, Last Night of Ballyhoo, and Parade, focus on Jewish life and relationships in Atlanta. Why was it important for you to write about Jewish identity in the South? Well, I didn't have much Jewish identity and that really bothered me my whole life because we clearly were Jewish, but we 
didn't celebrate anything much Jewish. We had Christmas trees and believe it or not, Easter egg hunts and all that stuff in our little German Jewish community in the 30s and 40s. And uh, I didn't understand what was worth it to be have to be a Jew. I would have, you know, it was treated like it was a disease in my little set that you had to sort of get over. There was none of the rich heritage that there now is all over the place in Atlanta. And uh, I, I grew up robbed of my heritage, really. Hmm. Well, in exploring that struggle with assimilation and acceptance, what did it say about the Jews who were living in Atlanta around the turn of the 20th century and in those early decades? I think my particular ancestors was only a small segment of the Atlanta Jews, and there was a whole healthy bunch of Jews in Atlanta, I now know, who celebrated the holidays and uh, went to Hebrew school and were bar mitzvah and all those things. My particular family wanted most of all to be Southern. They wanted to be Southern and they wanted to be Americans and they had to be Jews. I learned when I wrote The Last Night of Ballyhoo that Jews weren't the only ones that were self-integrating. There was something, I don't know if Ralph ever heard of that term about paper bag parties, and but all my black friends told me that in college they had paper bag parties. And if you were darker than a paper bag at some of these parties, you couldn't get in. And that really floored me. And I, I met Scots who, Highland Scots were better than Lowland Scots. And Boston Irish were, were not as good as whatever Irish. And it wasn't just the Jews. It was people hating yourself or just wishing you were something else. It just fascinated me. I mean, this whole Jewish thing is gone now. This whole Jewish better than other Jews thing. I think once the Holocaust got known, that kind of knocked the lights out of it. So now it doesn't exist. But there are always self-prejudices in this world. And I'm very interested in social systems. And uh, Jane Austen made a lot of success writing about it. So I just had it in my own way. Award-winning playwright Alfred Urey. He will give a free virtual talk about race and religion with the Bremen Museum on Sunday, December 6th. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter, at L-O-I-S, R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. 
Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.